Welcome back, Psychonauts. So this is part two, um, and we we left off. We, I told you we were just kind of talking about primary and secondary reinforcements, and we were going to get into schedules of reinforcement. So let's have at it. So continuous schedule of reinforcement, behavior that is reinforced every time it occurs. All right, so when I look at these and think, think of these, I always think of like a dog with treats and taking them to dog training school and stuff. So continuous schedule of reinforcement, you, reforce, you reinforce them and give them a treat every single time they do the thing that you want them to do. And intermittent, all right, so moving, sorry, moving on to the next one, intermittent reinforcement or partial schedule reinforcement. This is when reinforcement occurs every so often. Um, and we actually find that re responses are generally more stable and last longer uh, once they are learned doing it this way versus reinforcing all the time. Now, no matter what it is, when the reinforcement stops, the behavior will quickly go away, and we call this extinction. All right, so the next type of uh, schedule is a fixed ratio schedule, and this is reinforcement that depends on a specific quantity of responses. So I will reward every fourth time that something happens. And then the kind of the opposite of this or the inverse of this is variable ratio schedules. Um, there is no set number. It just all of a sudden you're reinforced kind of thing. Think of it like a slot machine. Um, so just it could be after five times. It could be after 500 times. All right. Now this next one that we've been talking ratios. Now we're getting into intervals. An interval has to do with time, not numerical numbers. So a fixed interval schedule. The first correct response after a specific amount of time is reinforced. Since no reinforcement occurs for a period of time, no matter the behavior, um, they, you know, these people or animals, whatever, they learn to stop responding immediately after the reinforcement is given and then begin to respond again towards the end of the interval. So the results is, uh, in this uh, happening is you see inactivity and then also in a short burst of responding uh, to whatever you know it is. So it's kind of a scalloped response curve. So um, for instance, if you're in a school classroom and a test is given every two weeks, students will feverishly study right before the test. And after the test, they don't study so much. Now, if you want people to always study, you do variable interval scheduling. And what this means is the time at which the reinforcement is given changes. So if you're going to have pop quizzes in a classroom all the time, you should be studying a little bit every single night because you never know when it's going to be. It's going to be variable. So the reinforcement comes or is gained the first time that you were given a pop quiz and you're ready to go. So the big takeaway is ratios, ratio schedules are based on a number of responses. Interval schedules is based on a specific amount of time or a time, I guess I should say. And responses are more resistant to extinction when the reinforcement uh, is a variable one rather than a fixed one. So when you're always like, I don't know when it's going to be. And to be most effective, research has said, however, you know, reinforcement must be consistent for the same type of behavior, although it may not occur each time the behavior does. So how people will react to uh, re will react cannot always be predicted. All right, and that brings us to our next one here of shaping. All right, so we're uh, this is a process in which reinforcement is used to sculpt brand new responses out of old ones. So 
The subject is going to do something they've never done before and would never do on their own, so we got to find some way to kind of get them to do it. So, for instance, a rat is physically capable of standing on its hind legs and using its mouth to pull a miniature flag and raising a cord and so forth. But it's not going to do it. it. There's just no reason to kind of thing. And so we need to shape it or mold it to do what we want it to do. Now, we've talked about this kind of before, this next one, aversion control, the conscious restraint and regulation of impulses and suppression of instincts and effects. And there are two ways in which unpleasant events can affect behavior, and this is negative reinforcers and punishers. So let's talk about negative reinforcement first. A painful or unpleasant stimuli is reduced or removed. So B.F. Skinner example, if walking with a stone in your shoe causes you to limp, removing the stone, negating it, allows you to walk without pain. So um, now this can lead to escape conditioning. You want to get away from the pain. A person's behavior causes an unpleasant event to stop. All right, well, I'm going to do this. That's escape conditioning. So I'm going to do whatever it needs to be done to escape this uh, unpleasant event. So um, a child who hates liver and has served it for dinner. So the plate is in front of them. Kind of think of it like that. It's right there in front of them. They can see it. They can smell it. And bleh. All right, so the child starts to whine about the food and starts to gag while trying to eat it. They can't choke it down. <laughs> At this point, the child's father removes the liver, gets rid of it. The whining and gagging behavior has been thus negatively reinforced, and the child is likely to whine and gag in the future when given an unpleasant meal. All right? This kind of learning is called escape conditioning because the behavior of the child allowed them to escape the dreaded liver meal. Now, this is very similar here, avoidance conditioning. The person's behavior has the effect of preventing an unpleasant stimulation from even happening. So remember before, the child had the liver in front of them, was starting to eat it, started to gag, and then it went away. All right, this one, the child starts whining and gagging instantly as soon as the liver is removed from the refrigerator. All right, the father sees this and decides to put it back, and I will start cooking something else. All right, so we would identify that the situation as avoidance conditioning. All right. The child avoided the unpleasant consequence of even tasting it, seeing it, whatever, in front of them by whining very early on. The reinforcement here is the reduction of the child's disgust and not having to eat the liver. And that brings us to punishment. An unpleasant consequence occurs and decreases the frequency of the behavior that, is, that produced it. So negative reinforcement and punishment operate in very different ways. So negative reinforcement this is escape and avoidance behavior is, uh, this escape or avoidance behavior, sorry, is repeated and increases in frequency. Punishment behavior, what is punished decreases or is not repeated because of it. So remember that whole escape and avoidance, they keep doing it because it gets what they want. Punishment is we punish them so they don't repeat it. So remember that the goal of ne negative reinforcement is to increase the occurrence of behavior that ends an unpleasant, unpleasant stimulus. The goal of punishment is to decrease the occurrence of a particular behavior. And reinforcement can either be positive or negative. So the aversion stimulus um, that we talked about earlier. So the disadvantage of this punishment is this aversion stimulus can produce unwanted side effects such as rage, aggression, and fear. 
Um, so then instead of having to change only one behavior, additional behavior may need to be changed. So children whose parents rely on spanking them to control disobedience may also have to deal with the problem of their children increasing aggressiveness towards other children. They may find that, you know, well, spanking is okay, so for me, why can't I do it to other people as well? Not always the case, but a concern, I guess. A second problem with the punishment is that the children learn to avoid the person that is delivering the aversive consequences. Children learn to stay away from their parents or teachers who punish them frequently. And children may also learn to act one way around their parents or teachers just to avoid the punishment. But when then when they're out with someone, you know, their friends, then they act that way. So basically, um, the parents then, or teachers, have a less of an opportunity to correct the child's inappropriate behavior because the children's just not doing it around them. They're acting one way around them and then somewhere, you know, a differently around them, somewhere else kind of thing. So the punishment most likely will just suppress the behavior but not eliminate it. So eliminate it. So they're suppressing it around their parents, but it's not gone. So punishment alone does not teach appropriate and acceptable behavior. It must be accompanied by a modeling of desired behavior. So you punish someone, but then you show them what you want. All right, and that brings us to Albert Bandura. And Albert Bandura performed a study in 1961 to demonstrate that children learned aggressive behavior simply by watching the model perform these behaviors. And this illustrated a third type of learning, and that is social learning. And we're going to get into some different types of social learning. So um, there are two main types here that we're going to be talking about, cognitive learning and latent learning. And uh, we're also going to be talking about some learned helplessness, and then we're going to get into modeling. So let's talk about this cognitive learning here. All right, so cognitive learning focuses on how information is obtained, processed, and organized. Um, and this learning is concerned uh, with kind of the mental processes involved around it. Kind of think of it like a mental map uh, or cognitive maps. So you take in this information, you organize it, and you have it all kind of mapped out in your head. All right, so the next one we're going to talk about is this latent learning. So uh, the one before, you know, this cognitive uh, learning, we're taking in information, organizing and stuff. Latent learning, it's learning that occurs that we don't even really know that it's happening. It's, it's happening in absence of reinforcers. Um, so in, we don't even really maybe even know that this is going on until much later when a reinforcer does appear. So, for instance, you're walking around downtown, and you've only really been there once before. And you're like, oh, man, I don't know where I'm going. Then all of a sudden, you kind of get that aha moment. Like, oh, I kind of remember that sign or that lamp looked funny. I remember that street lamp. And it comes back to you later. So you, were, you did learn it, but you need to get there and see some things for it to kind of come back to you. All right. Now, the last little bit we're going to talk about here before we get into modeling is learned helplessness. And this kind of comes with the, you know, kind of the pain, the, the reinforce and stuff. But if pain comes, no matter how hard one tries, someone, people generally give up. And so if you always fail a test, then maybe you start, you stop trying for that test. And that is learned helplessness. So uh, the big ones I want you guys to take away from this is, you know, kind of the cognitive learning is this latent learning, learned helplessness, and just cognitive learning in general kind of thing. And this leads us to modeling. 
So through observation imitation, you have learned what to do. And there's three different types of it. So the first one is mimicry. We witness the behavior of others, and then by just witnessing them doing it, there's an increased chance that we're going to do it ourselves. Other people start clapping, we start clapping. All right, then there's this observational learning or imitation learning. Now, this is where we see someone, um, you, know, the, you know, we're watching someone do something, perform something, and then later on we're able to reproduce it. So it's later on that we are able to reproduce it uh, because we saw them doing it. So um, the Bobo doll experiment, this has been that Albert Bandura I told you about. He says that by watching uh, others and imitating others' behaviors, where it comes from, that, you know, this observational learning we're observing and then imitating. So he thought that children were more likely to act aggressively after they had observed an aggressive behavior in which the models were either rewarded or at the very least not punished for doing something. And he did it with the Bobo doll. And there's this like punch me clown that you punch and it kind of rocks back and then rocks back and forward. And it is, so adults would basically come into a room and just hit this Bobo doll. And then they found that later on, kids would enter the room and start doing the exact same thing because they saw adults doing it and not getting punished for it. All right, and our last one of these three is disinhibition. When an observer watches someone else engage in a threatening activity without being punished, the observer may find it easier to engage in the same behavior later on. Uh, this also leads to desensitization, which is a form of disinhibition, disinhibition, sorry, and it can be either positive or negative depending on how it is used. So, for instance, when someone becomes less and less impacted by violence through multiple exposures, it can make the person more accepting of violence, and that can be a good or a bad thing. All right, now we are slowing down here because we are at about the 14-minute mark, so we're kind of slowing down, but behavior modification. This refers to the systematic application of learning principles, classical conditioning, operant conditioning, and social learning, the big three that we've talked about, in order to change people's actions and feelings. So behavior modification involves a series of very defined steps on how we're, you know, going to change this behavior. And the success of each step is carefully evaluated to find the best solution for a given situation. And this usually begins by defining a problem in concrete terms. So, for instance, John's mom might complain that his room or that he is messy. All right. So the very first thing she needs to do is define messy in objective terms. He doesn't make his bed in the morning. He drops his coat on the couch or something like that. She doesn't care about where these bad habits came from, but rather, you know, what will work as a system of rewards and punishments to get him to make his bed and hang his coat up kind of thing. Now, um, we're, we're all about rewards and punishments here. And, you know, the last thing I kind of want, well, second to last thing I really want to cover with you guys is token economies where people are systematically rewarded to act appropriately. So think about overcrowded classroom with a teacher. All right, so they're going to uh, kind of deal with the problem children more so than the children that are doing the right things. This isn't necessarily a good practice, but the teacher is scatterbrained. They don't have enough time to devote to helping out the people that need, or I'm sorry, to the people that are doing the right things, and they end up having to do all the discipline stuff. So let's flip this system on its head and say, look, we're going to reward the people for doing the desirable behavior. And 
this has been proven to be very effective in prisons, mental hospitals, and halfway houses. You basically reward someone for doing the positive things. We are always quick to punish. We are not as quick to reward. So a lot of schools are doing this where they reward students for doing what is good things, like picking up a piece of trash or being kind to someone else or helping or holding the door for someone. Now, a lot of what we've covered today, and like I said, we are finishing up here, but a lot of what we've covered overall in this podcast um, is going to relate back to self-control. One of the most important features in behavior modification in general is asking people to set up a personal system of rewards and punishment. You know, police yourself. It shouldn't have to be someone else doing it for you. And this is the self-control program. So you might set up a behavioral contract, which is choosing a reinforcer, something positive, and pairing it with something less desirable. So, for instance, I really like this TV show, but I hate cleaning the kitchen. So if I clean the kitchen then I get to watch one episode of my favorite TV show. So you take something you don't like, pair it with something you do like, and you make this behavioral contract or this kind of self-control program. And the very, very last thing that I'm going to leave with you guys is something to maybe kind of emphasize the self-control, but also a nudge in the right direction by the right people, I guess. But, and this is study habits, because maybe you're learning, you're listening to this to help you to study, or maybe you just want to know about it, but studying in general. So we, we started off with this program. Students were put into a new study room, okay, and told to study as long as they could. And then when they got bored, tired, started daydreaming, whatever, read one more page and then leave. Get out of there, go home, or just, you can't come back until tomorrow. So then come back the next day, repeat the whole process. And what they found is each day the students could stay a little bit longer. And here's what happened. The new location removed the conditioned aversion stimulus. So for instance, I have a lot of toys at home. I have a lot of computer games, video games. Um, I have my wife and my, my son to, to you know that I want to hang out with and stuff. So it's very difficult to get work done. So right now, I'm at work recording this because I know I'm not going to be able to do it at home. So the new location helped to get rid of this conditioned aversion stimulus. And the gradual increase of the assignment made more gains in a very slow build. And this was successive approximations. So basically, the big conclusion I can get out of this for you guys It is important to note that classical and operant conditioning and social learning do not operate independently of one another. And that's what makes this unit so difficult because a lot of the terms are overlapping one another. They intertwine and interact with one another in very complex ways. So, and that kind of leaves me with a final thought for you guys. This stuff is very complicated, and I know that this podcast isn't going to do justice to everything there, but it's meant as a jumping off point. So, please feel free, go out and grab some more information on this. You can, you're welcome to go to my website and get information on this. It's a shameless plug, I guess. I don't know, but it will help you at least. Uh, www.mrmcewen.com psychology section. You can find um, the chapter on this and it has more information. You can follow along. This isn't easy information to understand. So get help where you need it, but use this as a jumping off point. So Anyhow, we'll stop there for today. I hope you enjoyed this, and hopefully see you again. Have a wonderful rest of the day.